I remember I was 12 and that song came on the radio and I felt like I had to turn off all the lights and like lie down and close my eyes. So I was having a psychedelic experience before I like even knew about them. Hello and welcome back to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark and you can follow me on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at The Daily Guru. The podcast is always available in the iTunes and Google Play stores under EarFuel and at GetEarFuel.com. What you heard at the top was a clip from my chat with the always amazing band Deep Valley. That full interview is coming up, but before that, a quick album review. The album I want to look at today is actually an EP, and it's the new one from Nine Inch Nails, and I love the title, Add Violence. This is supposedly the second part of three EPs linked together that began with last year's Not the Actual Events, and it's going to conclude with a third as-yet-to-be-named EP later this year. So with that in mind, it's sort of necessary to look at this as both a standalone recording, as well as in the context of being kind of the middle child. Granted, when it comes to EPs, Nine Inch Nails start at a massive disadvantage, as Trent Reznor is responsible for one of the greatest EPs ever in the form of 1992's Broken, but one thing this EP definitely proves is that nearly three decades into his career, Trent is still exploring. Add Violence has just five tracks, with the final song accounting for almost a third of the entire runtime. And the songs themselves keep things in a mid-tempo feel with varying shades of darkness. That is to say, if you're looking for the Nine Inch Nails that brought songs like Wish or Mr. Self-Destruct, you may be disappointed just a bit. The opening track has this tunnel-like, just very tight and constrained feeling, but in a good way. It's got this awesome aggression to it, but honestly, I feel like Trent is holding back a bit on this track. I don't know how to explain it, it's just, it feels like even in that great tension he can create, there should be more to this song. In a way, that actually speaks to my main problem with this EP. It feels incomplete, even for a middle part of a three-part set. The Lovers doesn't really move much, Not Anymore is just a miss of a song, and the final track sort of ends up in this pretentious noise experiment that ultimately fails. However, I must point out the song This Isn't The Place because it's without question one of my favorite compositions in the entire Nine Inch Nails catalog. It's got that wonderfully doomy, gloomy sound with this unnerving build and volume. It's almost part futuristic funeral dirge and part snowfall on a dark afternoon. It's just, it's just kind of perfect. Overall, Ad Violence isn't the worst thing Nine Inch Nails have ever done, but it's not in the top half of their musical achievements either. I know there are tons of internet theorists out there who are reading into this and where things might go with the third installment, so for now, check out the song This Isn't The Place, and then just go spin your favorite Nine Inch Nails album instead of listening to the rest of this EP. Before we get to the conversation with Deep Valley, I want to quickly do one of my favorite segments, which I like to call, wait, 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 shh, you've got to hear this. For this installment, we're going to check out a brief moment from a live track of one of the greatest bands ever, 
And there's this note that the singer hits for me that is just pure bliss. It's a gorgeous, vulnerable note that I still get chills every time I hear it. Now, I'm going to give you the entire vocal vamp that opens the song. It's about 30 seconds, and you will know the note when you hear it. The date of the recording is November 24th, 1981, in Montreal. The band? Yeah. It's Queen. Wait, wait, here comes. Shh, shh, shh. You've got to hear this. Somebody, somebody, can somebody find somebody, somebody love? Moving on. Back in the summer of 2013, I stumbled across a record called Sistrionics by a band I'd never heard of called Deep Valley. I was instantly hooked on the heavy stomp rock that seemed to blend together everything I loved about a number of different genres. Punk, metal, funk, just really everything. The songs on that album got better every time I played them, and last year they released their fantastic second record, Femagism, which we discussed at length last fall on the podcast. The duo of Lindsay Troy and Julie Edwards are currently in the midst of touring with Garbage and Blondie, and they sat down with me for a bit before their show here in New York City. So, you know, one of the things that I really have always loved about you guys as a band is, I kind of call it, it's perfectly impossible to, to define your music. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, because there's elements of Sabbath in there, there's elements of glam in there, there's even... At least I think, and I hope I'm not putting anything on you. There's some P funk in there, like there's yeah. definitely oh, yeah, some, there's definitely yeah. some, so, in some, there. some deep grooves in there. So, since that it's such a focused and precise musical sound, how did the two of you meet musically? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I think it makes sense that there's so many different influences because we both, I mean, we both grew up with a wide variety of musical influences yeah. and come from different different musical backgrounds. Julie grew up in musical theater. Yeah, I was way into musical theater, also film scores and classical music. So, mm -hmm. like, I didn't even hear the Beatles till I was like 14. I didn't even know they existed. So, what were you being exposed to music? Literally, just like mostly classical West based Side music? Story okay. and, and Mozart. Julie had a cool, uh, cool rocker older brother who exposed her to a lot of cool stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. My brother is Greg Edwards from Auto Lux and Failure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he really desperately tried. I think he failed for many years, but I remember he gave me Dark Side of the Moon and he gave me um, Loveless, My Bloody Valentine, mm -hmm. and I had no idea what to make of either of those things. I, my brain didn't even know where to like place them, but then slowly over time, I got really into it. But I'd say the first rock song that grabbed me and started to change my chemical makeup would be David Bowie. Space Oddity. Yeah. Such a classic. I remember I was 12 and that song came on the radio and I felt like I had to turn off all the lights and like lie down and close my eyes. So I was having a psychedelic experience before I like even knew about them. Wow. Nice. And and you with your early musical years? Yeah. So I come from a very musical family. Um, my dad was at Woodstock when he okay. was 17 and where he first saw the Grateful Dead and fell madly in love with that band and then went on to like go to hundreds of shows and write books about them. 
So, um, and my sister Anna is here with me. So, we grew up. Um, my dad played a lot of Grateful Dead around the house, and then a lot of um, a lot of Beatles, Rolling Stones, um, classic rock, and then it was also the '90s. So, like, there's also the influence of of '90s rock, um, mm-hmm. like Nirvana and Hole, and also like No Doubt and. Um, but then there was also this whole folky world that we were involved with. Like my, uh, I grew up playing, well, in a band with my sister playing like folky guitar music at coffee shops in San Diego. Um, cause there was like a big scene of, for that down there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's like, you know what, that's what good girls do, right? They play like play nice folk music. Um, <laughs> Until we went to the dark side. But, uh, yeah, so we were around a lot of different influences. And then, um, yeah, I think when Julie and I met, it was just trying to figure out what the commonalities were of what we, what loves we shared. We both loved rock and roll. Um, we, yeah, we both had a big love of classic rock. And then also, like, um, Leonard Cohen and Elliot Smith. And then, like, um, John, Lennon. John Lennon and Soul, like Marvin Gaye and... Uh, Nina Simone and um and just also like yeah so we kind of just I think just found our commonalities and decided that we were going to be like a blues a blues band originally that was like the first we're like let's try to do like a blues jam let's go from there and then see what happens Mm -hmm. and then from there it just evolved into into this yeah Mm -hmm. so with uh femagism which is one of my favorite album titles ever. Um, You know, you've got everything from the killer stomp on um, little baby beauty queen, which I really, really dig. Then you've got that like almost slinky sway to a handful of other songs, you know, uh, Royal jelly bubble baby, things like that. What's the writing process? Like, do you guys have the lyric first? Do you get the groove first? You know, how how do you build songs so differently? Well, they're all built differently, which I think it like informs the, forms the work you know yeah like but those three songs i can't really remember with lbbq but i remember the royal jelly and and bubble baby were definitely like existed as music as jams Mm -hmm. that we'd really liked like we started just free jamming jams that we were getting stoked on yeah yeah and then i also um little baby beauty queen i think was that way too so it'd be like, you know, Julie and I just like get in a room together and we're like, let's just start jamming and see what happens. And sometimes that's a really painful process and sometimes it's very fruitful. Um, so those songs are definitely born from that because like, for instance, I feel like Royal Jelly is so rhythmic. Like yeah. the guitar and the drums are just like married, you know, so that really I feel like only could have been born had we both been playing our instruments right. at the same time. And Little Baby Beauty Queen, I really just really wanted to like make a Mets song mm-hmm. the band Mets mm-hmm. they're one of my favorite bands I wanted to do something so like just heavy and and then of course we had to throw in our our like medley hip-hop flavor we couldn't stay in the heavy punk sure world with that song for whatever reason so it's got both yeah I was I was kind of like I, I was that song for me I think the guitar riff was like pretty like Queens of the Stone Age influence yeah sure so with uh Beauty Queen also it gets dark lyrically at yeah. the end there and you know where 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 did that come from because it's it's a bit of a left turn all of a sudden in that song well where do you think it came from what do you think honestly i i was thinking of uh the i think i w- what was her name the jean benet ramsey case 
okay, cool. Yeah. It worked. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I know that's the beauty like yeah. of that one is is when people pick up on that. Uh-huh. Um yeah. yeah we were just in- inspired by her story. I was suddenly I forget what plunged me into um a really focused period of reading a few different books and kind of going on like Reddit and just getting back into that whole case. Mm-hmm. And then Lindsay and I would talk about it when we'd be rehearsing and writing and I was developing a theory. And then it just, strangely enough, the 20 year anniversary of her death was when feminism came out. Mm-hmm. And, and it was also like right around the time feminism came out was the time that Burke Ramsey gave the interview to Dr. Phil yeah. and where people's theories of what had happened were changing. And it was kind of a crazy like um, coincidence. Yeah. So the record itself in general, though, it's it's a really strong record and, and much much like the first album, which I adore. Thank um, you. I really just love that record so much. Thank you so much. It was perhaps a little strangely prophetic because obviously, you know, the, the songs and the, the what I take as a lot of the meaning and intent behind the songs surfaced before, shall we call it, the very slight change in our climate in this country mm. uh, because obviously the chaos hadn't really started when this came out in September. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel that some of these songs have almost taken on a second life now in the light of how things have changed in the last few months? I think about that sometimes when we're performing, but more with like end of the world from sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. End of the world always end of the world is always resonating a different way. Every time we play it, I'm yeah, like, yeah, cause that's a very kind of, yeah, like politically charged song, I guess, or it's just about, you know, yeah. Like world peace or whatever. You know, it's kind of got the Woodstock about yeah about like not being divisive. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's got you the w- Woodstock you know ethos or something. So, yeah, it's interesting as as the political climate changes, the meaning of that song also like it can becomes more relevant or potent or something, mm-hmm. which is very mm-hmm. cool. Which songs in particular from feminism are you referring to? I'd uh, love to hear. I mean, you know, I, I definitely think that "Smile More" and "Gonna Wanna" definitely. You know, just w- we see what's happening here, and mm-hmm. um, I don't I don't want to slam other performers, but when I listen to songs like that, the the realness behind it puts a lot of other theoretical like songs of empowerment that are actually really more about record deals and selling lots of records and looking good than actually empowering mm. women. Yeah, you know, I feel I feel like this is kind of the real deal. You know, it's it's very visceral. It's very kind of what you hear on the street almost. You know, from from people in my life and uh, yeah, yeah, huh. you know, it, very it, cool. Yeah, thank it's you. It's definitely the real deal. I mean. It's very authentic and from the heart, so it's just finding the listeners who it speaks to, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just hope that it can always, you know, it's find good if those it can people. resonate. Yeah, yeah. For me, Gunawana though is really just like we were on a major label, and it was such a revolutionary concept that we just wanted to make whatever record we wanted to, mm-hmm. and that we whatever we wanted to do, that we just wanted to do it. That seemed to be like a weird revolutionary concept to everyone or like an unexpected notion. So that's kind of what Gunawana is, is about for me. It's like, it's really duh. It's like, yeah, no duh. Everybody wants to do whatever they want to sure. do. But sure. at the same time, it's like strangely revolutionary that like, you know, you're going to do it when you want to, you're going to do it how you fucking want to, you're going to do whatever the fuck you want to. Mm-hmm. I think that's also like, um, who was the black magic guy? Uh, like Alistair, Crowley. Crowley, I think yeah. that may have sort of been his saying, but his saying was like, do what thou wilt or yeah, something. Yeah. Anyway. I like that. Paraphrase of that. Yeah. And then Smile More was definitely, yeah, like uh, sprung from just a general fed upness of just everyone around me kind mm-hmm. of just 
Yeah, just feeling like trying to boss me around and tell like me what to do. Probably including me, <laughs> especially me. <laughs> um, so not like specifically feminist. <laughs> um, but it's very universal, I think, you know, and people really can relate to it, which is very cool. And again, with sorry, with Smile More too, I think I really, it, it makes me happy to have songs that are that like, I guess, just empowering because yeah. I know having that music for me growing up was so important uh, to have like role models and, um, and to have those songs that were like a catharsis to listen to. So I'm happy that people find that in, in our music. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and you know, that's what I mean. So many other artists put stuff out and you can tell instantly like this is to sell a record. This is an image thing. This is not from the heart. And, you know, it's, it's why I put these songs on such a different level. Um, Thank you. So, Thank you. You know, so you've had these on the road a long time. Do you have favorites to play live? It kind of changes all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I used to love playing Little Baby Beauty Queen. And something happens <laughs> o- overseas. Took a turn for the worst. And I can't even put my... I have no idea what it is, but I just got, like, out of... I just lost my comfort level with it. Or, uh-huh. um, World Jelly, I think, is kind of a... It's really it's fun It's a continuing one. favorite. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, I really like playing Julian, because the drum beat is kind of, like, bizarre, a little bit bizarre, and um, it's, like, so minimal mm-hmm. that it's, like, shocking... And I kind of like that. For, yeah, for me, um, it does. It definitely does change, which is interesting. Um, and like, audiences' reactions to stuff too also like affects how you feel about performing stuff. Because there's certain songs that just always resonate with the audience and they make the audience go crazy. Yeah. And like that is obviously very inspiring and fun for us. So Royal Jelly is one of those songs. End of the World is another one of those songs. Something to do with the rock drop that happens into the chorus. That makes just people like go wild. Um, and Walk of Shame is another really fun one to do live. The crowd's always really responsive to that. It's got that good growl on it, you know, good punch to it. Yeah. Love that song. Yeah. And Smile More as well. Smile More is always like really grabs the audience, I feel like. So you guys kind of took an opposite approach to what you normally do in a way then with the unplugged uh, sessions that you did. What inspired you guys to do that and strip everything down? Well... Our label wanted us to. <laughs> <laughs> on our yeah, on our first record cycle, people would ask us a lot to do unplugged stuff for okay. like promo, like in stores or or radio. We were really offended, and my thing was like, you don't ask folk artists to come and do metal versions sure. of their songs. Like, why are you asking us to try to figure that out? Like, that's not what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. So that was really frustrating. And by the second. Second record cycle, I guess we were more beaten down. Yeah, we were beaten down. We realized we <laughs> needed to be able to do it because everyone was going to want us to do it everywhere and like just be prepared and face facts and uh-huh. play acoustic. So we're like, okay, we're going to try to figure out which songs lend themselves to this. And there was, it was an interesting process. Like certain songs just do not lend themselves to that at all. Other songs did more immediately. And then other songs, you kind of had to reimagine them. Like Turn It Off, for instance, mm-hmm. was like completely reimagined. So it, w- it was fun because it was, you know, it is like rewriting a song sometimes or, yeah, reimagining it and breathes new life into it, which is very cool. Yeah, uh-huh. it was really fun. We're really stoked with how it came out. And they just, I think the label was just picturing some like bonus stuff, like acoustic guitar kind of wham bam. But of course we had to like take it to the next level and really yeah. do it up. Yeah, I think they were just like, oh yeah, just record some, you know, some just like acoustic versions of the songs. Like in their mind, it's like no brainer. Just like go in sure. your room and sure. But we wanted to like, we're like, well, if we're going to do this, we don't want them to be like throwaway versions. We want to make them like very cool and like they exist on their own, yeah. you know. 
So, yeah, we really, like, tried to make them as awesome as possible, and we love how they came out. They're kind of, like, haunty, creepy, vibey. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and you can kind of feel the, the differences from album to album. Um, was the differences where, where the first record is, it's a little more metally, a little more grungy, and the second one, like I said, it's got that cool funk and soulful feel to it. Is that just kind of where you are in your musical evolution, or were you, did you consciously think, you know, you wanted to write a little differently? Well, I will say this. I think there are uh, some songs that didn't make it to Cistrionics, like that were kind of had a funky. I, I think like there's always been like a little bit of a funky thing. Yeah, there's happening. definitely yeah. always been that. Um, what's that song we used to love playing all the time and it didn't make it on the record? It ended up being tripping a in the desert. No, <laughs> no, the really funky one, like Hobo Playhouse. <laughs> yeah, that one was pretty funky. That one didn't make it on the record. Trout. For some of us lose, that's why we. Oh, ain't fair. Ain't fair. That's on. Is that on the record? Yeah, there was a lot of great songs that didn't make it onto the because I think record. at that time we were on Island UK and they were really imagining. They had a very specific notion okay. of like what we were. How are we going to market this band? We need to, you know, we can market them as a rock band. Right, so like, like let's like pick their rock, rock song. Like modern got rock. It. So like you know the songs like Lies or Bad for My Body really got like shoved to the front and then like m- more like funky stuff was I think like, kind of less understood by them. Sure. And yeah, got relegated to B-side status. Ain't Fair is one of my favorite songs that we've ever done. I kind of miss it, I don't know. It's yeah, just, I love that song. Some songs just fall by the wayside. Mm-hmm. It's tragic, it's yeah. really tragic. Or like even like Six Feet Under, like that song didn't, you know that one, yeah, from Sistrionics. Yeah. That song didn't really like fit into the label's idea of what kind of band we were. They didn't really understand it because it was like a long song and, mm-hmm. I don't know. They just didn't really get it. And like, I was madly in love with that song. Sure. And like, that's when we play that live. Love that song. That's one yeah. of our fans' favorite songs. And it's one of the greatest ones to do live. So, you know, I guess like, it's, it's interesting. Like how you said we're kind of unquantifiable as a genre. Yeah. Like, it's like, I mean, I love that. I think it's very cool. And in, in a lot of ways that works for us. And then in some, maybe certain times it works against us. Cause they're kind of like, well, wh- you know, what radio station do you belong on? Like, yeah, we're or something a, like the, that. The bottom line is we're like a total ano- anomaly. And I think it's, it's kind of been a struggle to figure out where we go, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit. Yeah. There's too many like weird, we're, we're, we just have a lot of weird thing elements about us. The fact that we're a two piece that we're, with girls that we're not just playing like rock music we're playing like yeah all these different genres and then we like dress crazy and sparkly like sometimes people might see a picture of us and think we're gonna like lady gaga or something i don't know it's (laughs) but i feel like the 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 diversity of our music and i really appreciate that you pick up on that and i think like that that will pay off over time like having a varied body of work is i mean i'm an album listener you're an album listener like that's what I my favorite stuff was always the stuff that was like kind of all over the place like the Beatles or like sure. Blur or you know just like you never know what to expect from the next track and and uh yeah so I think like I don't think I don't think I'd ever have the attention span to make a record that was like into narrow genre no mm-hmm. yeah and my all-time favorite band is the Beatles and like I always I think about them a lot when we start to write something that maybe doesn't fit into our genre. And I'm like, well, yeah, they they just did whatever, whenever. And it always worked. And people loved it. You know? Yeah. We should cover. Why don't we do it in the road? Yeah. I think we talked about this like early on in our career. We should do it. What was it like then to get the call 
you know, hey, do you want to go out on the road with Blondie and Garbage and kind of have this multi-generational, empowered, strong women thing going on? Well, we first heard about it. We were, like, up for it. So that's how it works. You're, like, you're submitted. Sure. You know, they see if you're, you're in the running. You're yeah. in the running. And you have no idea who you're running against. And we've been in the running for so many things. It's yeah. like, mm. That you don't get. So we know not to get our hopes up. Yeah. But, but that one was really. And I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm, like, a, a defeatist, like, pessimist. So, but this was so amazing that I literally cared enough to want it. You know, I really was just, like. I want that. I want that to work out, you know? And normally I'm like, eh, you can't control anything. Fuck it all, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, this is like an extraordinary, insanely extraordinary opportunity. I can't even, like, every day we're here on this tour, we're pinching ourselves and just, yeah, like, it's unbelievable whoa. on so many levels. Um, just, I think we all grew up with, like, you know, uh, listening to, like, Garbage and Blondie, and um, they're both such cool people, and they have... You know, they've shown such mutual respect for us, which is so cool and so empowering. And it's just, I mean, and I'm in total awe of, of Debbie Harry. I mean, I just can't even wrap my brain around it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So you guys are going to finish this tour. Then you've got some UK dates and then you're back in the States for a bit. Mm -hmm. Then dare I say, are you guys going to take a break? Do you guys know how to take a break? (laughs) You guys are like beyond road warrior. We work the breaks in, you know? Yeah. Like, for as hard as we work, we also have an approach of not working too hard. I don't know if I can really, if that makes sense even, but it's like a, you got to work hard while not working kind of (laughs) approach. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, we're, Lindsay's going to go on tour with White Long playing bass, which she's done before, which is so good. Super Um, fun. I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe just like. Be a mommy. I'll be a mommy. And then, then we got to make our next record. Yeah. That's it. Do you want to write the next record while I'm on the road? I'm just, yeah, sure. <laughs> You're going to love it. Great. <laughs> My thanks again to Julie and Lindsay for chatting with me. You can find them all over the internet at Deep Valley. That's D-E-A-P-V-A-L-L-Y. And if they're coming to your town or close to your town, do your ears and your soul a favor and go check them out. Now, before we wrap the episode, I do, of course, have your weekly Ear Fuel listening assignment. For those of you new to the podcast, each week I assign an album to listen to in full, beginning to end, without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the fact that these days, music has been largely relegated to a background task. You're at the gym, you're at work, you're out driving, whatever. And this assignment is about taking some time each week to consciously listen to music for the sake of music alone. This week, because, well, because it's one of my favorite albums ever, your listening assignment is the Descendants' 1982 masterpiece, Milo Goes to College. 15 tracks, 22 minutes, all perfection. Really, to a certain extent, that's all you need to know about this album. I mean, punk rock has always been about the outsider, the uncool kid. And in 1982, Milo Ackerman wrote and lived that to the fullest. The album is loaded with to-the-point songs about rejection, relationships, struggles in school, and just generally being an outcast. Along with that, the album title is to be taken quite literally, as following the recording, Milo did in fact go to college, placing the band on indefinite hiatus that would last a few years. And for those wondering, Milo now holds a PhD in biochemistry. You want something geeky and nerdy? The Descendants know what that's like. 
but the album oh, this is the epitome of blink or you'll miss it punk but it can also be seen as a bit of a prototype for what many now refer to as pop punk but unlike contemporary bands with that title the descendants hold strong to the hardcore sounds as well while fast and without filler the band never sacrifice melody and this record overflows with unforgettable hooks and a number of iconic songs. From the bass line on the album opener, to the riff on Suburban Home, to, well, everything on the song Hope, these tracks have aged perfectly and are somehow just as good each and every time you spin them. I mean, the backbone of this band is Bill Stevenson, one of, if not the best punk drummer ever. The guy basically lays down the blueprints on how to fill that role perfectly, and his work keeps this steady frenzy from beginning to end that you'll just love. Lyrically, whatever in the world is pissing you off, a spin of Milo Goes to College will help you to vent and get your head back in the right place. It's just one of those albums that's sneakily cathartic, and nearly every song has a universal message within. The record has a number of fantastic rants and criticisms of a spoiled society, and they're as relevant now as they were more than three decades ago. Pretty much the entirety of the song, I'm Not a Loser, covers that idea as Milo pens one of the finest It's Okay to Think Differently tracks ever. It's just his sneer and snarl, all delivered with a grin and emotional authenticity that makes this record so special as it perfectly balances the punk rock middle finger with hooks and melodies you can't get enough of. Really, this is a record I listen to multiple times every week and have for the majority of my life. I love it. The bottom line is, Milo Goes to College is one of the greatest and truly addictive albums ever. And if somehow you don't already spin this one on a weekly basis, you need to change that right now. Thank me later. So that's all for this week. My thanks again to Deep Valley for stopping by. As always, the podcast is available in the iTunes and Google Play stores along with it at GetEarFuel.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at @GetEarFuel and at the Daily Guru. And if you're one of those folks on Instagram, you can find me doing random musical stuff there under the name EarFuel. That is your weekly EarFuel. Share and enjoy. Enjoy. <laughs>